Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health/dave for an exclusive 10% off. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave. Today's cool fact of the day is about leafcutter ants. Uh, They're the only animal besides us humans who cultivate their own food. They'll actually cut off pieces of leaves, chew them up, put them into little compost piles. We've got our fermentation angle there. And then they feed off the fungus the pile produces, which is actually a healthy fungus, not an unhealthy fungus. It's not really the bulletproof diet that they're on, but it seems to work for them. And it's kind of terrifying to imagine what they would eat if they were living off bulletproof coffee. So let's not go there. Today's guest is Nina. And Nina, I'm just going to freely say I cannot pronounce your last name even after trying. So would you please pronounce your last name perfectly for our listeners? Um, It's pronounced Thai Scholes, like a tie you wear in Dr. Scholes shoes. That is the best mnemonic ever. Uh, okay, Nina Teichels. Yes. Got it, sort of. Beautiful. <laughs> this, despite the fact that I have a hard time pronouncing your last name, Nina, I'm a fan of your book because you wrote this awesome book, best-selling New York Times book called The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. And 
That's amazing. You've also contributed to Men's Health and Gourmet Magazines, Cooking Health, We've Gotta Be Friends. But you've also done these little things like New Yorker, The Economist, New York Times, Salon. You've been an NPR reporter. And basically, you're way cool. And I wanted to have you on the show. Thanks for joining. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. If you're watching on video, you may have noticed I'm wearing a really cool shirt with astronauts on it. And that's because um, I've been getting a lot into the SpaceX program lately and just felt like today was time for astronaut wear. So um, I'm not exactly wearing my normal podcast, whatever. But, hey, it's fun. Sorry, I don't have any astronaut gear on. I look just so conventional and boring by contrast. But I like your shirt. One of the things I've been thinking about is that if we could convince – the space program to look at fat and they understood that there was more calories per gram of fat, they could actually carry less food up into the space station if they would fat adapt the astronauts. It'd save rocket fuel. You know, that's interesting because um, I, you, you must know of this team that just rode across the Pacific and they were fat adapted and they, you know, they, they took all their food, they take all their food with them in a boat rowing across the Pacific and they did extremely well. I don't know if they won, but they did extremely well. And, um, it took them like 28 days and they have to carry all their food with them like a, you know, like a spaceship. So Weight must have been one of the factors that you know helped them. Aside from the um, the, the advantages of being on a fat adapted diet for endurance athletes, which I'm sure you know about. Well, so we just jumped right into like eating butter and like living off fat and astronauts, uh, which is unusual for the show. Why did you get into biology in the first place? Like you've written a book that is, is I, I think, really a good book and very uh, respect worthy. But how did you get there from being an NPR reporter, studying at Oxford and Ivy League? Like, like explain the transition. Yeah, I mean, like you, like I wasn't studying nutrition. I was um, an investigative reporter and I was doing a series of kind of investigative pieces into the food industry and for gourmet. And my editor assigned me a piece on trans fats. This is back uh. in like 2003. And I wrote a story um, that kind of broke open that whole subject. It was, like the, it was a, the first really in-depth look at what the issues were around trans fats. That led to a book contract. And I started writing a book on trans fats. And some of the people that I met or talked to for that story just blew my mind about this bigger story about all dietary fats. And I mean, your listeners might know, you know, Mary Enig was this pioneering scientist who was completely harassed and ignored by the establishment scientists. And then Gary Taubes, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners know about him, but it just made me realize there was a giant story out there that had gone under reported. And so I decided I was going to write about all dietary fats, which is a crazy endeavor. You know, it took me nine years to write my book because I had to read every last study and, you know, really just dive into this in a really intense, profound way. So that took a long time. The two authors you mentioned, uh, Mary Enig, who I have not had the pleasure of meeting, uh, and Gary Tobbs, who uh, I I consider just an, an amazing writer, actually was kind enough to speak at Silicon Valley Health Institute, which is an anti-aging group um, that I've, I've been involved in the leadership of for a, a decade. And so getting to have dinner with Gary and meet Gary, it's like, wow, like this guy 
never wasted a word in 500 pages of good calories, bad calories. So if you're listening to the show and you don't know either of those authors, they're both worth reading. If you're interested in, in learning a little bit more other than the basic, like, Hey, here's the bulletproof diet. You know, here's a paleo diet. Here's how to eat more fat. You want to know why you want to get over a fear of fat. The science is, it's kind of hard to argue with. And you can really pay attention to the things those those two have written. So thumbs up that you mentioned them and, and thank you for providing that resource to the readers or listeners as this case may be. Well, you know, I think of Gary Taubes as like the godfather of this whole yeah. movement, right? Yeah. So he wrote these articles in the late uh, 1998 and then in early 2000s about well, he really was the first person to put together this story about like how do we get going down this path of believing that fat and saturated fats are bad for health. And he was the first person to really stitch that the soft science of dietary fat was the title of his article. And he put that in his articles in his book that came out later. And then, so where I take the story from there is, I mean, just for people who I know you have an educated audience. I mean, where I take the story is, you know, I kind of, take the next step from what Gary did. I cover some of the same history as he does. Um, my book is a little bit more geared to a little bit more of a general audience. It has, I think in its best possible light been called a nutrition thriller. <laughs> it's kind of a page turner. I mean, yeah. the economist called it a page turner. And then I kind of tell, I continue on the story about what about the Mediterranean diet, that's maybe not all that it's cracked up to be. And what is the story about olive oil? And I really go into more of the story about how the food companies have played a role in this history. And then, you know, Gary's book stops in 1986. And I really, I sort of continue on with the science since then. Um, you know, what has happened in the last decade? The last decade of science and progress in this area has been revolutionary. So, there's, you know, what was the role of Atkins? What's the role of Dean Ornish? I analyzed his science, which had some surprising gaps in it. And I tell the story of trans fats, tropical oils. What happened when we took trans fats out, which is kind of a scary story. So it just covers some ground that, you know, it's like where his book leaves off, I pick it up a little bit and carry the story forward. And it's such a huge story. You know, it's, People have said, like, well, why do I need to read your book when I've read Gary Tobbs? And I say, you know, it does have this additional information, but also it's like World War II. You need more than one book on World War II. <laughs> it's a huge story. I would say your books are different, and uh, Page Turner is definitely true. And writing a, a nutritional Page Turner, I, I mean, I, I just finished writing the Bulletproof Diet book, which is honestly not a Page Turner. It, it's got the story of Congratulations. bio. Oh, thank you. Rodale, December 2nd is our, our, our big launch. But That's awesome. the challenge of, of you know, working in hundreds and hundreds of references, but still making it accessible so that it's like, well, what do I do with all this versus kind of the story? And what I, I like about your book is that you have the story, but it's not dry. Like reading a, a history of nutritional policy book would, would put anyone to sleep and you totally didn't do that. So thank you because when people learn how they've been basically defrauded by modern industrial food, they should feel a little bit betrayed and angry. And when they learn it takes 600 days to replace half the fat in your cell membranes, you realize, okay, I'm not gonna fix myself in a week, but I can probably feel better. But it's gonna take 
four years to get 75% of my cell membranes back where they should be if I had just been eating the stuff I was supposed to be eating and someone lied to me about. Like that kind of stuff should make you a little bit upset. It does. And I get a lot of really passionate emails from vegetarians, from people who are angry that they've been, you know, carrying around extra weight, people who've lost their parents because their mother or father was, you know, strictly religiously eating margarine, following a low fat diet and still died of heart disease. I mean, they're just stories range from the small to the tragic. Um, You know, as a nation, you know, we have become so much sicker, obviously sicker. And one of the stories now that nutrition experts tell us, they basically have two kind of ways that they shift the blame away from their own bad advice. And one of them is, you Americans, you are fat because and diabetic because you don't work hard enough, you're all eating junk food, and you don't exercise enough. So it's, it's your fault. And one of the things that I document in my book is, and this is you know available data to them too, but um, you know we have we have reduced our saturated fats by 11% over the last 30 years. We have increased fruits and vegetables by 17%, and we've increased carbohydrates by 25%. As we've been told, you know we have followed that food pyramid, eating most of our calories in that big bottom slab. You know, at the same time, we're clearly fatter and sicker. So how can that truly be our fault? You know, I don't think exercise is really an explanation because, you know, there were, we, it's not like the, we were all hunters and gatherers running around the savanna, you know, anytime recently. I mean, people had office jobs, There were no gyms in our grandparents' days. So, I mean, it's a little bit, you know, jogging craze didn't start until the 1970s. We actually are a fairly active population. Clearly, our working hypothesis is not working. And, you know, the main message of my book is this has been our hypothesis that fat and saturated fat particularly are bad for you for the, you know, it's been our hypothesis since 1961 when the American Heart Association issued its first anti-saturated fat guidelines. And it's been our hypothesis for over half a century. It clearly isn't working. We need to try a new hypothesis. It was that exact, it clearly isn't working thing that finally made me start paying attention to fat. I used to weigh 300 pounds and it's like, you know, you're fat when you're fat and then you do what, what most people do, which is it's because I didn't try hard enough. Like I have these clear recommendations. So I'm like, all right, I'm done. I am going to work out six days a week, an hour and a half a day. Make sure I get my exercise in, half weights, half cardio. And I'm going to cut my calories to around 1,800, sometimes 1,500. And I'll eliminate fat and I'll eat those stupid chicken breasts and whatever else. And at the end of 18 months, I was still inflamed. I was still fat and I was strong. (laughs) But I was fat. I, I didn't have to go. I didn't have to buy new pants. I was still size 46. And I'm a 34 today. So, and yeah, that's people's experience over and over again. And, um, you know, I was also, you know, carrying around 10 more pounds than I do today. And I used to exercise strenuously an hour every day. Um, now I have almost no time to exercise, (laughs) even though I love it. But I don't have to worry that I'm going to, you know, I love exercise, but it's just, you know, it's hard for people if you've got a job and kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are so many stories like ours now. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's hard for people to realize, and you know, and 
people keep trying the same failed solutions and getting the same results. You yeah. know, what is it? I think it's Albert Einstein who said, people who are insane are people who do the same thing and expect a different result. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons I think my book has had a decent reception, um, one is that it's got like, you know, thousands of footnotes. So it really is, it's really well referenced and it lays forth a strong argument. But I think also, you know, the doctors who, whom I've spoken with, including like a cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic, they, they're surprisingly receptive because they know that the solutions that they give to their patients are not working for them. How many more times do they say you need to cut down your fat, you need to ramp up your fruits and vegetables, you need to exercise more, and their patients aren't getting healthier? You know, I was going to say, you know, there are two explanations that I started to say that there are two explanations that experts give about why we are not successful, the way that they shift the blame. One is by blaming Americans themselves, and the other is by blaming the food companies for producing all this crappy food. And they do. But one of the things I try to do in my book is to tease out, you know, I, I go into depth about the role the food companies have played in this whole story. Um, I'll just give you a little tidbit of that, which is going back to the 1940s when the manu food manufacturers were grow starting to really grow up, you know, Heinz, Best Food, Standard Food, they realized that influencing nutrition policy was the key to get it selling their products. And the American Heart Association in the 1940s was this sleepy little cardiologist society. 1948, Procter & Gamble goes to them and says, we would like to make you the beneficiary of our Walking Man radio contest. Overnight, $1.7 million flows into the American Heart Association coffers. Suddenly they, they are opening chapters all over the country. They've started a research budget and that really transformed them into the national powerhouse that they became today, which they still are today. And coincidentally, 1961, the American Heart Association's first nutritional guidelines say you need to switch from saturated fats to unsaturated fats, which are vegetable oil, crisp oil being Procter & Gamble's major product. So the interests of food companies have been in there from the very start. But I have to say that the story that I ultimately, I think that this is a story of failed science. Yes. Scientists pushing results to, you know, con making conclusions about results before the evidence was ready, and then perpetuating their bias for a certain hypothesis, ignoring evidence to the contrary. And this is, you know, the bulk of the story is really that. Making soft science suffice and not being rigorous enough about the science. One of the things that really got to me when I was fat was, was that idea that, that I was being scientific because you keep seeing this. And what you don't know is that you have that huge selection bias and you have the funding problems and then you have the marketing problem. And the, the companies you mentioned, um, all of them got their start even 50 years before the 40s as coffee companies, believe it or not. Like when you look at Post and Kellogg and all of that, they all started out selling something that throughout history has been uh, a commodity and somehow right. making it different or, or, you know, telling people that this was better, this was special, even though the whole time they were grinding down quality, grinding down, that's funny, but um, <laughs> they're you know, grinding down quality, doing whatever they could to just make it economically, you know, one more cent per pound of profit. So right. then they became expert at basically saying two cups of coffee, they kind of look the same, so they must be the same. 
And it was that ability to just apply marketing on top of that, that they then transferred to food and then they transferred to basically breaking public policy and hacking science. And I, I don't ascribe to these companies being evil or the people running them being evil. It's that it's like an emergent behavior when you have tens of thousands of people working towards, you know, selling more raisin bran or whatever it is. It just goes that way. And, oh, I can grow soybean oil. Let's find a way to sell it. And so it, 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 it's up to people to see, well, wait, I tried that for a while and I'm not actually better than I was before. And like paying attention to personal results and looking at what happens around you. And then it's up to scientists to look at the double blind side and then also look at the clinical side. Well, wait, if the double blind says this, but all of the clinicians say, good God, like my patients are dropping like flies, like you need to balance both of those out because they're both useful data sets. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things to say about nutrition science and why it has gone awry. My chapter on trans fats, um, you know, I got really deep into the world of food scientists, particularly oil chemists, who are the people who work on fats. And the story of trans fats, I mean, there's a section where I talk about how there was literally like a mafia of guys who were there to protect vegetable oils and particularly to prevent the story of trans fats from getting out. So going back to Mary Enig, one of those original scientists I spoke to, she encountered this mafia. They they would call up journals and try to get her, her articles, prevent them from getting published. They literally told me they follow scientists around to conferences and their job is to stand up and ask as many aggressive hectoring questions as possible. It's not that they, and they don't think of themselves as bogeymen. They truly believe that they're defending something, you know, that what they're saying is true, but nevertheless, they're organized by a trade association, the Institute for Shortening and Vegetable Institute for Shortening and Edible Oils. And this is part of what, you know, the vegetable oils company do. They're some of the biggest companies in the world, ADM, Cargill, Bungie, Monsanto. And um, they've been very successful. I mean, the story of trans fats started in the food supply in 1911, and they were not even really, there was nothing really written on them until the 1970s. And Mary Enig was considered a complete zealot for even talking about them for decades. Well, not decades, but a decade. So... You know, that's one of the stories about how bad the science is, the influence of industry. But it's also true that scientists inside the field are not doing great science either. They're doing these epidemiological studies. I mean, this gets to your point about how we're, they're ignoring what the doctors say. You know, doc, it used to be that doctors were involved in research more, you know, and they saw patients. So they understood what it meant to try to get somebody to lose weight or, you know, they can see that up close. Now, most of the headlines in nutrition come from epidemiological studies because it's very easy to generate headlines out of these big data sets. And what those scientists do, they literally just, they send out survey forms they get back the survey forms. They do statistical analyses on them. They might never see a, you know, a person who's trying to lose weight. They really are so detached, and they don't understand anything about biology, metabolism, basic biological processes. They're just looking for associations. And then there's all kinds of problems with you know measuring people's diets. How many peaches did you eat last year? Check a box. <laughs> Four hundred more questions. I mean. You know, the, the validity and quality of that data is is questionable. And many science 
to question it. But currently, our epidemiologists are in, you know, they're, they're some of the most, the biggest names in, in science today. And still, I, I, I go after them pretty strongly in my book and by name. And, you know, but they're behind all those headlines about scary headlines about meat eating. Meat eating causes cancer. Meat eating causes heart disease, stroke on the front of the New York Times. All of those come out of those kinds of nutritional epidemiological studies. Earlier, you mentioned uh, Dr. Ornish, and I yeah. I called him out when Steve Jobs died because after it took about two weeks of, of digging around to figure out what the Steve Jobs diet was, and it turns out it was the Ornish diet. And I basically said, Dr. Ornish, like <laughs> the evidence is pretty clear here. Like we've we've lost, you know, one of the luminaries in our tech industry, uh, and right. your your advice against saturated fat and for all this other extremism um, was a part of that. And, you know, he, he came onto the blog, how dare you, I have evidence. And I said, come on to the show. I, I, you're invited on to the show to tear me apart here for what I'm saying. Uh, but uh, he, he wouldn't do it. And the, my understanding of, of looking through his research was that every time meditation effects, which are quite good for cardiac outcomes, plus or minus a low-fat diet, the meditation effects were a huge variable in getting the results. And if you're going to mix things up like that, you need to unmix them. And when you eat that low-fat highly polyunsaturated diet, you don't get the results you're looking for. Well, there's quite a lot I could say on this subject. <laughs> you know, um, there's a section in my book on Dean Ornish. I think it's the first time that his science has really been scrutinized that I could find. Thank you for and, doing that. Well, thanks. I mean, it, I talked to him several times. He was called by his the colleague with whom he did all of his original studies, Dr. Gould, says when I got in touch with him, I don't think anybody's ever called him up to ask about his views on, on those original studies that Dean Ornish did. He said, wow, I just can't believe how Ornish has turned those studies into the mega career that he has. Because you know, it's a little bit like seeing an empire on top of a pinpoint. He did one well-controlled clinical trial on 23 men, 19 of whom finished, using a questionable outcome measure, which is, you know, scans of your arteries. It's And those scans really do not track well with heart attack risk. It turns out it's a little more complicated than simply the diameter of your artery. And they weren't just about diet. They were about, as you say, meditation, supplements, other kinds of stress relief tools, yoga, all of which could have an influence on the outcomes. So, and, you know, it's a tiny study. I mean, it's statistically completely insignificant. But if you want to pick the numbers, I mean, there was one death by somebody on his diet and zero deaths in the control group. So, you know, to he likes to quote relative risks, which I don't like to do because I think it inflates yeah. the reality. But, you know, to use his numbers, there's a 100 percent increase in death on his diet, <laughs> you know, one versus zero. That's so, a thousand percent, we could say. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So that's the only trial that he did. And there are it, it, he really has created this huge universe on top of this time. And he will say, you know, he says to me repeatedly, in the studies that we've done, he, he does, I think it's fair to say he mischaracterizes his work. There was only one well-controlled study. The other study was so uncontrolled. They took one group, 
to a like a Buddhist retreat and you know did everything for them for a week and the other group they just left in their homes and did nothing for them and that you know there's something called the intervention effect where people just by intervening with them even just a health worker coming to their house to say you know what's in your kitchen can I help you you know talk to you about diet even just counseling once a week makes a difference for people they respond to it. it's like the placebo effect so there's really just that one study that he did, um, which he's based his empire on. And, um, you know, it's really not clear that a very low fat diet is good for health because when they have tested it, it turns out that it makes your HDL, which is your good cholesterol drop. It reliably, uh, makes HDL go down, which is not a good sign. And, it's also, you know, fat deprived people, when people are deprived of animal foods, then their cholesterol is depleted in their brains. And that has been shown to cause not just be linked to, but actually cause psychological issues, problems, mood disorders. You know, I, I can only add, I'm not going <laughs> to say this is a, a causative link, but I just want to say, you know, Robin Williams was on the vegan diet since 2009. And he's a friend of Dean Ornish's and their neighbors, they live nearby each other. So, you know, I think a lot of people get better on vegan diets and there's all diet works to the extent that if you get rid of, uh, sugar and refined foods, everybody looks better if they get rid of junk food. And to some extent, all those diet works. But if you go back to look at some early experiments on animals that were done with vegetarian and vegan diets, they would say, it's not impossible to be healthy on those diets, but it's much harder. Getting the right balance of legumes, grains, seeds, and that makes it much, much more difficult to stay healthy on those diets. I mean, not to mention you can only get vitamins B12, B6 in animal foods. You cannot get those on a plant-based diet. I was a raw vegan uh, for quite a while. And after, oh. uh, after about, I mean, I, I'm willing to do anything. I've tried just about every diet out there. When you're fat, and you're motivated, like you're, you're gonna, you're gonna get there. So during that time I did lose some weight initially and you end up eating, actually you're not getting an excess of protein, which is also inflammatory. Uh, and right. I developed a bunch of autoimmune conditions I didn't have before that. Uh, I also, I felt great for three months and you get the, the glow, which is also associated with a famine <laughs> because oh. it, it's your body going like, oh my God, I'm not getting some of the things I need. Like really, you should have a lot of energy. Like, could, could you go find some food? And then I, <laughs> I bought extra big bowls to fit enough salad to satisfy myself. And so I, I actually really feel a lot of like brotherhood with, with vegans because even though sometimes I tease them. What what's going on there is they care enormously about food quality and animal suffering, right. and and I do too, which is why like I actually the cows I eat now actually eat grass that grows uh, like in my front of my property, <laughs> and like I know the guy who raised the cow, his name is George, uh, and when I'm in the U.S. I know the guy who raises the cows there, and he's been on the show, so like you can handle animal cruelty and even the environmental aspect of eating uh, a diet that includes meat and dairy fat. So I've been honored when, when other people who are vegan, like will sit down and say, you know, I'm going to have sushi with you, Dave, just because like, I've looked at the science and like, you see that like shaking first bite. And then it's, it's so predictable. Like I feel better. Like I'm not hungry all the time. I'm warmer again. Uh, so anytime someone has that level of courage to just say, all right, I'm going to step outside my paradigm or just like put some ghee on my 
lentils. Like, okay, just, just like, let's bring our brains back online all the way. So what else happens when people add, you know, when, when they're vegan or vegetarian and they add saturated animal fat back into their diet? Like what, what sorts of health parameters change? Well, you know, the arguments that I make for saturated fat, I mean, you know, Part of my argument is going through all the evidence about why we think these fats are bad for us, yeah. right? Really reviewing that and showing how weak it is and how did this whole hypothesis get going. And then I talk only just a little bit about, you know, I, I talk a lot about the last decade of clinical trials. So, you know, after Gary Tabbs wrote his book, it unleashed this whole conversation in the scientific community that had been really underground. Um, you know, people really did not talk about fat, high fat, there would be nobody like you and me having a podcast. And so there was this group of scientists who started looking into whether a high fat diet could be healthy. Um, researchers like Jeff Follick, Eric Westman, Steve Finney, who, uh, who's actually been doing it since the 1980s. And they started doing a series of really rigorous clinical trials looking at basically ketogenic diets, which are yeah. you know very low carb diets. And they just saw again and again and again that, that people look far healthier on that diet in terms of their ability to lose weight, in terms of their diabetes and heart disease risk factors. So you know, thousands of people have now been tested on that diet, and the clinical trial results are really clear. I mean, high-fat, low-carbohydrate trumps not only low-fat, but also trumps the Mediterranean diet, oh, yeah. it seems. I mean... But I think that, you know, what's the case for saturated fats? What are the, you know, the actual benefits of saturated fats? So one thing is saturated fats are the only fat that will actually raise your, your HDL, your good cholesterol. So we're all told to go exercise and drink red wine to raise our HDL. But you could also just have eggs and butter, and that will also raise your HDL. So that's one good thing about them. And another sort of unsung virtue of saturated fats is that they're solid at room temperature. And what that reflects is that they are stable. They are stable yes. fats. They do not have any extra double bonds that can react with oxygen. So that means that when they're heated, they do not create what are chemically toxic oxidation products. Compared to vegetable oils, which are polyunsaturated, meaning they have lots of double bonds, all of which can react to oxygen and all of that, they become more reactive at high temperatures, especially for prolonged periods of time, such as occur in restaurant fryers. So I'm just going to go on a little tangent here, if you don't mind. Oh, please. But, I'm loving this. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that happened when we got rid of trans fats, trans fats are a byproduct of hardening vegetable oils. The reason you harden vegetable oils in, in part is to make them more stable, right? So they kind of mimic what a saturated fat is naturally. So it used to be that McDonald's fried their French fries in tallow. When we had to get rid of saturated fats, we, they brought in, like all companies, these hardened vegetable oils. So like it's basically Crisco, you know, a, a yeah. kind of Crisco. And they can be hardened to various degrees. And they've been in our food supply since 1911 when Crisco was first launched. So when we got rid of trans fats, starting off in 2007, all the big fast food chains 
started because they could no longer use these more stable oils in their fryers. They switched to just regular oils. Even regular worse. oils. <laughs> so McDonald's, Burger King, but even more kind of worrisomely, all your mom and pop restaurants, like I live in New York City where we have a trans fat ban, so no restaurant can use them. I worry more about, you know, my local Chinese place or any mom and pop restaurant, you know, it's unlikely to change their oils frequently or have procedures in place or, you know, nobody can test for most of the toxic oxidation products that there are. You know, McDonald's and Burger Kings have developed some mechanisms to try to, to test for them or to, to counteract them. But I mean, just to, just to give you a little sense of how reactive and volatile these oxidation products are. So um, it's basically, you know, all these fat molecules reacting with the air. The way I got to know about this story was a vice president in one of the big oil companies said to me, you know, they're having these, they had these horrible cleaning problems in all the major fast food chains when they switched over to using these oils. And all this gunk was building up on the walls. They couldn't scrub it off. And when they, uh, it was clogging their drains. And when they took the restaurant uniforms to be cleaned in the back of the trucks, they would spontaneously combust. (laughs) And they were having fires in the trucks and they would clean them and they would have fires in the the dryers because they were so volatile. There's, you know, hundreds, literally hundreds of these oxidation products with, you know, aldehydes, acrolines, I mean, degraded triglycerides, and it's just an endless list of them. So just getting back to saturated fats, saturated fats do not oxidize. And, you know, we used to only cook with butter and lard before 1900, and there are still great cooking fats. They are solid and stable at room temperature. You just like, that's just such a huge argument for them that we don't really know about. I only cook with, with ghee or butter, uh, and occasionally coconut oil if I want that coconutty flavor. Um, but it's it, it's such a big impact on health, and it's such a small change in behavior. You're going to cook in a fat. Just pick the right one. Like it, it didn't cost substantially more. Like it, it was it was so simple. But most people are still cooking in olive oil because they think that's healthy. What does cooking in olive oil do for you? So olive oil occupies a unique place between solid fats and polyunsaturated vegetable oils. Olive oil is what's called a monounsaturated fat, so it only has one double bond. So it, you know, the the oxidation products that it produces are somewhere in between. It's not as bad as most, like peanut, corn, soy, safflower, those oils. Um, So it's a little bit better. And you know, I I use olive oil in salads, and but you know, now when I make bacon, I take the fat from the pan and strain it through a coffee filter and that's lard. Oh <laughs> yeah. Know, so and lard is great for cooking. I can't get over how delicious it is and it's it doesn't smoke up in the kitchen. Like it's just a great fat for cooking. And again, it is the main fat that has been used in Western civilizations, you know, since antiquity. You can the word lard is in in the Odyssey you know, a great chine of ox rich with lard, spread with lard, or I think that's what Homer wrote. But, you know, it's a great fat for cooking, and it's starting to make a little bit of a comeback. 
one of the scary things is that if you go to a normal grocery store and you get some lard, you turn it over, it says in Spanish, Monteca. And I know that because I used to live in a town named Monteca, actually it was supposed to be named after butter, but they named it after lard accidentally, a small town in Northern California. <laughs> Oops. Oops, right? <laughs> but uh, that lard is hydrogenated, so yeah. it can be shelf stable. So you want to get grass-fed, high-quality lard or bacon grease. And what I do, you know, I, I cure my own bacon from heritage breed hogs that ate the right stuff. And I save it and I put it into a blended salad dressing. So you take one of those olive oil or MCT oil-based salad dressings and you add the bacon grease to it. And you end up, you're like, is there bacon everywhere in my salad? And all of a sudden, <laughs> like, it makes me really happy to eat a salad like that. Oh, that sounds amazing. That sounds great. Well, you are so privileged to be able to, you know, to live your, like, walk your talk and do everything that you care about. I mean, there are now companies, there's a company that's making, you know, artisanal lard and, and they're, they're just companies starting to get going, I think, because there is now a demand for it. And if you look at where you're going to apply your food dollars, buying high quality fats, is one yeah. of the most important things uh, people can do. And, and on the Bulletproof Diet, I've, uh, over the years, looking first at fertility and restoring fertility and looking at anti-aging and all, like the recommendations are 50% of your fat is saturated minimum. And you minimize polyunsaturated fats as much as possible. And if you're gonna eat unsaturated fats like olive oil or monounsaturated, uh, then what you wanna do is never heat them, keep them in the fridge, don't expose them to light and air. And people are like, Dave, you're a little bit obsessive about this, aren't you? I'm like, yeah, yeah I, I just do the things that work the most. And it turns out eating right. unoxidized oil that isn't damaged and building healthy hormones and healthy cell membranes it sort of rocked my world and I walk around looking like I like work out all the time and I'm a former like super fat guy for you know more than half my life. So like, <laughs> yeah, I, I do eat like that for a reason. Right. And what? you know, if you want to read the, sorry, but I have to say, if you want to know the science behind that, I think I'm the first person to really review all the science that has going, been going on since the 1940s on these oxidation products and what is the implication for health. And so your book is, is amazing. Scared. Well, I'm not trying. I know I'm just promoting no. myself, but I just want people to know like that there are these like th that's a completely new, original, interesting piece of research. And I desperately want it to be out there because, you know, the more we move away from trans fats, these are the cheap alternatives and we are all being exposed to them. So I really want people to know about that. So, Nina, this topic deserved a book with all the references you did and it's not in my book I, I there's a few references but honestly it's a whole book yeah <laughs> and, it's hard to write a book it yeah. is so hard yeah because you, you want to go in and you want to cover everything explain all the beautiful reasons and i i kind of beat myself over the head saying all right this is a how do you do it assuming that the science is there talking about the big science pieces, but to have a book like yours available where you go into the whole, like the story about how it became this way and what the science actually says, I, I'm grateful that you wrote it because every person who reads that is going to look at the fried calamari on the menu and just say what they should say, which is, are you freaking kidding me? Like, give me the foie gras, don't give me the fried calamari. Like there's a yeah. better choice. Yeah, well, you know, I think, our books are good as a good pairing in the sense that people need to read the story and understand for themselves. Yeah. They need to read the science. They need to read the history. They need to know the story. And then 
I get all these messages all the time, like, okay, now what do I do? Like, how? So I'm, I'm committed to trying a high fat, low carbohydrate diet. How do I do that? How do I do it healthily? I have no idea, actually. I mean, I'm just a rookie in this how-to world. So, you know, now I can refer them to your book. <laughs> and I think people, you know, people really need both. And for the conversation, for people to get healthy and for the conversation to move forward, we really need both kinds of works, I think. So, so now here's a, here's kind of a flip side of this question. There was a time after I was a raw vegan and all where I, I experimented all over the place. And I was in extreme ketosis. I went like three months on essentially zero carbs. I was eating a very high fat, very high saturated fat diet, only grass fed animal protein, eggs, and just tons and tons of fat. This is when I, I was shocked. I was trying to gain weight actually using a high fat diet to show like, well, calories in didn't match calories out. But I actually lost a little bit of weight over two years of doing like 4,000 calories a day of super high fat. But during that time, for three months, I cut my vegetables almost out. I'm like, I'm just going to be like an Eskimo. And I totally developed food allergies. <laughs> and I got super tired. I couldn't sleep at night. Uh, I it, like It was actually not a very good time. And I stopped doing that after I realized like the, the bad stuff was happening. And I hear this from women and sometimes kids who are super uh, ketogenic. They're eating high saturated fat. But they're never eating carbs and then they like sleep quality goes away and they get dry eyes and all that. What's your take on the flip side? You know, low fat diets don't make people feel good, but maybe an ultra high fat, ultra low carb diet. Like where's the middle ground in all the research well, you did? I'm not an expert in ketogenic diets. Like I really don't know. I would refer everybody to you or, you know, the person who is Eric Westman and Jimmy Moore just wrote a book yeah. called Clarity. They are the experts in in this field. Jimmy was just on the show. I'm so glad you mentioned him. He's, he's a okay. good friend. I love Jimmy. Well, I mean, they're really, you know, they've yeah. explored. I mean, what I do, I talk about, I talk about the history. I mean, just mentioning women and children, that's like a really interesting little nugget there because there's no data on women and, you know, women and children were kind of roped into this these dietary recommendations that had been for middle-aged men based exclusively on data for middle-aged men. And, you know, in 1970, the American Heart Association said, well, let's just, let's just make this dietary recommendation for all people, women and children included, over the age of two. And that was just like a kind of practical measure. You know, people eat together. If you lower everybody's cholesterol, it must help people there, you know, children had been observed with fatty plaques and it was assumed you could never start out your fight against heart disease too early. So women and children were also on this diet for, you know, decades um, and they weren't studied at all. There was no data on them at all. And, you know, I talk about like what that data actually showed that yeah. it seems like women look worse on a low fat diet for various reasons and children yeah. suffer nutritional deficiencies on a low fat diet. So, it's kind of amazing that they've been brought along and women, you know, women and children may have suffered even more on this. You know, I really like, I worry about children, you know, now the school system requires that children only have low fat milk and it's, horrifying. it's really just its whole own other issue. I think about, um, trying to get them healthy as well. You, you've written that you recommend cheese and whole milk uh, in school lunchrooms. 
At the same time, I've done a lot of work on proteins and inflammation in the body. And milk protein is such an inflammatory thing. It's linked with some behavioral, actually quite a lot of allergies and behavioral abnormalities. Would you support the idea of butter in uh, in lunchrooms as being even better than cheese or whole milk? Or are you less concerned about the protein side or just haven't researched it? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, actually. Okay. I mean, I think that, you know, I would always opt for natural foods over their low-fat varieties, yes. right? I mean, yeah. for many reasons. You know, fat fills you up and is more satiating. You can't digest the fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K, without the fat. Uh, and if without the, those vitamins, you can't absorb the minerals. And low-fat foods, processed foods like low-fat yogurt, they open fat. Is a, has a functional quality. It provides texture and creaminess and taste. And so to take out the fat, you have to use what's called fat replacers, which are always, almost always carbohydrate-based, often just sugar. So, you know, like a low-fat yogurt, your typical low-fat yogurt has the sugar equivalent of a Hershey's bar in it. And that's not true on higher-fat products. They're, they're lower in carbohydrates. So I think there are just many reasons to have higher-fat products. The protein findings, I just don't know whether that's, you know, too much protein in the absence of fat seems not to be healthy. You know, there's the issue of nitrogen poisoning. So it might be that some of what you're seeing on those, you know, some of those protein results that you're seeing that I haven't looked into, but I would suspect that they're looking at protein without the accompanying uh, amount of fat that is needed to process it. Uh, super important point about that. I, I see some of, uh, especially in the bodybuilding community, people who are on a you know, calorie restricted diet. So they up their protein and they drop their fat. And you can do that for a short period of cutting and get some benefits. But if you're going to do that as like a lifestyle to walk around lean and shred all the time, it's going to affect your your brain. Like you're, you're going to have all this ammonia from the protein floating around. And it's probably not an anti-aging strategy that I would follow. Uh, even though it might work, you know, for short bursts and, and it's such a balance. You want to look good, you want to feel good and you want to live forever. And like, how do you get all those? And one thing that, that I'm certain of more certain than any other thing that, that I've written about is that saturated fat is a requirement for all three of those. So you, you've got to do that. You've got to do that right. And then there's lots of other variables and you can, you know, I do my best to look at all the different variables and sort of say, all right, the balance of the research I've consumed says this is probably better than this. But it might, it might be it's like this and maybe your genetics are different. But it, right. the core principles there about like eating enough saturated fat, I don't think you can be a high performance human without consuming a healthy source of actually all the different saturated fats, not just coconut oil, because coconut oil is great saturated fat, but it's not the same as butter or animal fat. And um, those different fats do different things that your body needs. You know, all the research, uh, scientific research of the last 50 years has been uniquely focused on fat and cholesterol, right? It's like these silos of the entire scientific community being involved in looking at different fatty acids and their effect on cholesterol, almost always cholesterol, LDL, HDL. And, you know, the, the reputation that different kinds of saturated fatty acids have gotten over time almost entirely have to do with their effect on cholesterol, so, you know, it was always thought steric fatty acid is good, the kind that's mainly found in meat, actually, because it has a neutral effect on cholesterol. But, you know, cholesterol, it has been 
it has had this like blinding effect on the scientific community. Cholesterol is just one effect of the many biological things going on in your body. So, you know, we have been judging foods, fatty acids, particularly based on their effects on cholesterol, but it's just not the only thing going on in the body. So, you know, the idea that certain saturated fats are good and others are bad, I mean, that mainly has to do with this history of looking at their cholesterol effects. And and I, I don't think there's much research to say that one is better than the other, at least in terms of heart disease risk. That's awesome. And I've, I've certainly come to the same conclusion there. You've spent nine years working on, on this book, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. You must have come across some other malfeasance at food companies. Maybe it, it's uh, glyphosate or Roundup or, or genetically modified something or another. What's the next myth that, that you're thinking about? Like what, what else has bubbled to the top of your consciousness? Well, I can tell you something that I write about in my book, uh, which I think is an amazing story, which is that the idea that we thought for so long that tropical oils were bad for us, like coconut oil and palm oil, you know, we why did we think they were bad? We thought they were uniquely bad. And that is can be traced to this little story that I tell about how the American Soybean Association <laughs> basically saw those fats as being their main competitors. They were seeing them imported from um, palm oil, mainly from Malaysia. And those are, they were being started taking over their market in the, for basically from making manufactured foods, right? And because you need a, so- a solid fat, such as the kind you get in palm or coconut oil, in order for products to be long lasting, be able to, you know, stay on shelves, not go rancid and bad. So, the Soybean Association, their product was uh, hardened vegetable oils, and they performed that function for foods. They didn't want the palm oil people taking over their market, so they basically launched what was described to me as a slander campaign. They, yeah. you know, they set off across the country trying to convince people that tropical oils would kill them. And this all happened in the late 1980s. They had, they distributed brochures. They lobbied Congress. They. And, and, you know, by, the, by 1990, tropical oils had collapsed as a, an ingredient in foods, and they basically were just run out of the country and run out of the market. And they started making a comeback. You know, it's kind of interesting, the anti-saturated fat uh, sentiment that has existed in this country and is, I would say, even more prevalent among experts today. If there was just an article about the head of the American College of Cardiology who says he thinks everybody should be vegan. And that's also true of the people who run the Dietary Guidelines Committee, all anti-fat and especially anti-saturated fat. Everybody thinks the food companies are totally in there with them, but the food companies do do not benefit from that advice. They need saturated fat for their products, again, because it's stable. Nina, so for them, yeah. That's brilliant. Um, getting the food <laughs> companies to lobby to get saturated back because it lowers their costs and extends their shelf life now that they can't use trans fats, we need to do that. And I, I have this dream that maybe someday, even though I, I'm not a supporter of Monsanto, if you're going to hack soybeans or are going to hack canola could you hack it to make coconut oil instead of other crappy unsaturated oils like maybe that would feed people in a meaningful way but like seriously making it economically useful to include saturated fat is terribly important i, I love that idea <laughs> 
Well, you know, I think they they would get behind that idea. I mean, I haven't asked them personally yet, but I still know some vice presidents in, in food companies and the, or they're oil chemists. So who knows? Well, I, I can tell you bulletproof. If I can put saturated fat in something, like a cow butter, heck yeah. Like we're going to do it because it's what makes people full and satisfied and it makes them perform better. So like it's it's a requirement. I'm just not going to do the unsaturated thing because it's just not right. So that's awesome. Yeah. I mean my argument is like I don't know if there's a limit to the amount of saturated fat that is healthy. And I don't think that's actually, you know, other than 4,000 years of human history, I don't know that we there aren't really scientific trials on that. But it's definitely true that the evidence against them has crumbled away. So, you know, what I say is just let them out of jail. Why hold yeah. saturated fat to a higher standard now than any other food. You know, there are many experts who say, okay, we understand the evidence against them has been sort of discredited, but we still need a long-term two years at least clinical trial to prove that they're safe. You know, to which I think the, and the question is like, well, why hold saturated fats to a higher standard of evidence now than say broccoli, you know, just let them out of jail. Like broccoli doesn't have to go through a two year long clinical trial I, to I, prove that it's safe. I wish raw kale smoothies would. Um, one of the filmmakers <laughs> I'm working with on uh, on the toxic mold documentary I'm filming, uh, looking at another major hidden issue in our food supply uh, and in our homes. She just came down with masses of uh, of kidney stones and she was doing, you know, three kale salads and a, a raw kale juice all the time, which can contribute there. So it's, it's really funny. These things that we all think are healthy, they don't have those tons of science behind them that we're holding fat accountable for. And, yeah, I mean, kale yeah. is a goiter inhibitor, <laughs> which, um, you know, many carb-based, many vegetables are, and they prevent the uptake of iodine, which yeah. is terrible for health. So put them through a two-year-long clinical trial to prove their And, and they're cooked versus raw. And funny, when you look at the biochemistry, yeah. there's a difference. And like, I cook my kale. I have it growing in the garden, but I like, it's not that hard to make it less toxic, but it's funny. There's so many health experts recommending these things, but when you look at the science, it's not there. And it's totally unfair what you're saying uh, about like the standard that saturated fats being held to, even though it's an ancestral food. It is. And the evidence that was used to convict them in the 60s and 70s has has been re-examined and has crumbled. And, and I think that we now have two big meta-analyses by top scientists in the field, including some from Harvard, Cambridge, University of Berkeley. There was one in 2010. There was one in 2014 in March of this year. And they have both concluded, looking at all the clinical trials and all the epidemiological evidence, that you cannot say that these do not show that saturated fats cause heart disease. That is huge. Yeah. I mean, that reverses the most important piece of dietary advice for the past 50 years. And it's still obviously not mainstream, but that it, those are, those are big stakes in the road to change. I think they are indeed. And we're coming up on the end of the show and there's a question that everyone who's been on the show has answered, except that one guy when I forgot to ask him and I still regret it. <laughs> and the question is, out of all the things you've learned, not just from writing your book, but things you've learned throughout life, the three most important recommendations you have for people who want to perform better, I don't mean more like athletic or anything, just perform better at living, at their life, whatever it is they're here to do. What can you share? 
Well, that's such a huge question. Uh, you can say eat more butter. That's totally cool. But <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think there's no question that a high fat, low carbohydrate diet yeah. is better for health. So that's one. I mean, if you for obesity, diabetes, heart disease, that is clearly what the science shows. So that's one. I think that staying away from heated vegetable oils in restaurants or in your home is a really other, a really good piece of advice. And then I think the importance of kindness (laughs) above success and everything else. I just think that, you know, if there's something to guide you in your life, being kind is a, is a good one. Uh, we, we share that last one. And in the spirit of kindness, um, Dr. Ornish, if you're still listening to this, uh, I know that you're <laughs> actually working to help people. Um, just review the science one more time, please. <laughs> so on that note, where can people buy your book? Where's your website? And give us your coordinates so people who are driving in their cars now can listen. Okay, so the easiest thing to just say is it's thebigfatsurprise.com. There are links to buying it there, and you can also buy it on Amazon, bookstores, um, Barnes & Noble, but the easiest thing is just thebigfatsurprise.com. Nina, thanks again for being on Bulletproof Radio. It's been a pleasure, and thanks especially for talking about oxidized cooked vegetable oils because those are so bad. So I'm so glad you shined a light on that, and your book is so worth reading. So if you enjoy this podcast... If you're eating the Bulletproof Diet, you're drinking Bulletproof Coffee, and you want to tell your friends why, you should read The Big Fat Surprise because there's a lot of good science in there that's going to tell you why. Well, thank you for having me. I really have enjoyed talking to you. Have you heard about our new Brain Octane Oil? It goes far beyond upgraded MCT or any other coconut product for creating maximum cognitive function. You owe it to yourself to give it a shot. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.